Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So coming up in episode 90 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have guidelines on collecting employee medical data as employees come back to work following the lockdown. We then have news from Hungary of a decree issued by the Hungarian government which effectively overrides GDPR for COVID-19 related data. We also have news that the UK Joint Parliamentary Human Rights Committee has ruled that the NHS digital COVID-19 tracking app is not suitable for widespread use amongst the population in its present form as it does not have the necessary legislation behind it to back data protection. We then have an extended interview with Kingsley Hayes from Hayes Connors Listers. Hayes Connors Listers are specialists in consumer claims against companies who have suffered data breaches. We then have news that SAP, a popular business computer package has data handling that is not compliant with statutory requirements. We then have news from GoDaddy who has suffered a further data breach and have tried to suppress details of the data breach for a number of months. And then finally we have news that luxury car maker Tesla has suffered a data breach after used components from its cars turned up on eBay and it was found that personal data relating to the previous owner of the component or the card the component was in could be accessed from the components. So as always quite a mixed bag for you this week. It's a longer program than normal. Instead of a normal 30 minutes we're up to almost 55 minutes because of the extended interview with Tinsley Hayes from Hayes Tonner. But please do take the time to listen to the interview as it has some really interesting insights. As always, if you have any feedback for us on the GDPR Weekly Show, please send an email to podcasts at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we try to act on your feedback and your suggestions. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback which we receive, we're not able to answer your emails individually your coronavirus roundup from the gdpr weekly show now that boris johnson is announcing his roadmap for how the uk is going to emerge out of the other side of the COVID 19 pandemic and indeed by the time you listen to this he may of course have already released it Lots of companies are no doubt turning their thoughts to what's going to happen when your employees come back to work. Obviously there's going to be the whole issue of social distancing and how you keep people two metres apart. But you might also be thinking about how you're going to monitor your employees and how you can keep information on their well-being in the case of them returning and keeping a check on who and who has not been diagnosed with top ID 19 amongst your workforce. So I thought I'd spend a few moments just covering what the latest guidance is from the European Commission and the European Data Protection Board and the UK ICO on collecting that data 
and what you can do with it. It's important to remember that the COVID-19 pandemic has not changed the legal landscape in the UK regarding employee monitoring, and there are various laws which affect employee monitoring, including Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is implemented in the UK by the Human Rights Act 1998, which provides individuals with an non-absolute right to respect for privacy and family life and correspondence, and of course GDPR, and the Data Protection Act 2018. Given that almost all forms of employee monitoring will involve the processing of employees' personal data, and indeed, if they've been suffering from COVID 19, then they're sensitive data. Employers should also be aware of and consider potential UK employment law issues in the context of employee monitoring, particularly where disciplinary action may be taken as a result of such monitoring. The key obligations which GDPR brings regarding the processing of personal data collected from employee monitoring include that the personal data you collect must be demonstrably processed lawfully, fairly and transparently, collected for specified, explicit and legitimate purposes and not further processed in a way incompatible with those purposes and adequate, relevant and limited to what is necessary for those purposes. The ICO, for its part, has confirmed that it will take the compelling public interest in respect to COVID-19 pandemic into account when assessing organisations' compliance with GDPR in regard to employee data and COVID-19. As such, if an organisation's practices fall short of its typical data protection standards, the ICO may not necessarily take regulatory action, understanding the need to prioritise other areas. And this does not mean, however, that the ICO will refrain from pursuing serious breaches of GDPR. So what is the guidance? Well, other than key GDPR security considerations relevant to remote working during the COVID-19 lockdown, which we covered in a previous episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, the ICO has not yet issued any specific guidelines in relation to employee monitoring. However, the ICO have issued guidance directly covering the privacy implications of remote employee monitoring generally. Now bear in mind that this guidance was issued before GDPR came into force, but the principles remain the same, and the ICO is likely to take into account non-compliance with relevant recommendations when determining the extent of any enforcement action it may choose to take. The key principles outlined by the ICO include an expectation of privacy that employee monitoring is typically intrusive, and employees have an expectation of privacy in the workplace. Do bear in mind that when working from home, employees' expectations of privacy, of course, are significantly greater. You need to think about carrying out a data privacy impact assessment on the data which you are going to collect as part of this employee monitoring. Do carry out a formal data protection impact assessment before you implement any of the monitoring. In terms of legal basis and proportionality, you may well be able to rely on the legitimate interest as a legal basis to process personal data obtained through monitoring. And indeed, you may even be able to rely on that this monitoring is in the employee's vital interests. And of course, you've got the broader national picture, or indeed global picture, of the COVID-19 pandemic. But within your DPIA, you should document why the monitoring is necessary and the tangible benefits it will provide. Identify any potential detriment to employees because of the monitoring, including the risk of harm, damage or distress, and also to us what mitigating factors you're taking into account with that. Ensure that the purposes of monitoring are sufficiently important to justify limiting the employee's right to privacy. 
ensure that you're not collecting any more personal data than is necessary and ensure that there are no less privacy intrusive alternatives available. In terms of fair processing, employees must be provided with detailed information regarding the intended monitoring, including about covert monitoring can only be very rarely justified, normally only where you suspect criminal activity, so that's probably not going to apply in this case. But you also need to inform your employees about why the monitoring is being carried out, what the monitoring will involve and when and how it will take place, how information obtained through the monitoring will be used and to whom it can be disclosed, and the safeguards implemented to protect employees and to mitigate against any risk to their personal data. You also need to implement some safeguards, including to ensure that personal data obtained through the monitoring is only used in a manner consistent with the purposes that you've communicated to your employees, and is subject to strict access controls. Only a very limited number of trained staff should have access to the data, and you should stress to those staff the confidentiality of the data that's being collected. The ICO has also issued some guidance on what kinds of data gathering are likely to be considered unlawful in its eyes and these include intrusive ICT monitoring including monitoring employee keystrokes and mouse movements and clicks, capturing images of employee screens and tracking application use. Audio and video monitoring through laptop webcams and microphones should generally never be conducted in areas which employees would reasonably expect to be private. Now you need to take that into account, particularly if you're having Zoom or Skype meetings with your employees, that they're aware that you know the, the camera can not only see them, but it can see what is behind them. The ICO has also indicated that it would consider it unlawful for companies to access data on an employee's own laptop or tablet or mobile phone, where that data had no relation to the work being carried out for the employer. And you need to be careful as well if you're carrying out any monitoring of your employees through social media that that shouldn't be seen to be excessive. So I hope that's given you some food for thought as you get ready for your employees to return to work in your organisation in the hopefully not too distant future. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. In an interesting move this week, in decree number 179 of 2020, issued on the 4th of May, the Hungarian government restricted the protection and rights of data subjects concerning anti-pandemic measures as stipulated by GDPR and the Hungarian Act on Freedom of Information and Data Protection, their Data Protection Act. In addition to this, the decree restricts the right for claiming public information granted by the Hungarian Information Act related to COVID-19 measures. This is an important coronavirus update. The Joint Parliamentary Human Rights Committee here in the UK threw a bit of a spanner in the works with the government's plan to use the new NHS Digital Contact Tracing App, which we covered in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The committee has been carrying out an inquiry into the government's response to COVID-19 human rights implications and has concluded that the NHS Digital New Contact Tracing app does not sufficiently safeguard fundamental privacy and human rights. The committee said the app had been subject to in-depth parliamentary scrutiny, as was the case when state powers of surveillance and data collection have been extended in the past, and that given its significant and widespread implications should be re-examined by Parliament as soon as possible. 
The committee chairman, Harriet Harman MP, said that assurances from ministers about privacy are not enough. The government has given assurances about protection of privacy, so they should have no objection to those assurances being enshrined in law, she said. She went on to say, The contact tracing app involves unprecedented data gathering. There must be robust legal protection for individuals about what that data will be used for, who will have access to it and how it will be safeguarded against hacking, she said. She continued, Parliament was able quickly to agree to give the government sweeping powers. It is perfectly possible for Parliament to do the same for legislation to protect privacy. To give a bit of background, the app is currently in a beta trial phase on the Isle of Wight where residents are being encouraged to download and use it. It works by logging the distance between devices using Bluetooth low energy and stores a log of proximity information on the device using a random number linked to it. Should a user develop COVID-19 symptoms, they can choose to send this information to a centralised server so that the other users who have been near it can be informed. Much of the controversy over the NHS digital app centres around the fact that it's using a centralised database to store the information rather than the alternative from Apple and Google, which has been chosen by lots of other countries, which doesn't store any information centrally at all, but keeps all the information just on each user's mobile device. It's understood that UK is one of the only jurisdictions in the world to be pursuing a centralised model. This Monday, the 4th of May, the committee heard evidence from legal experts and also from the head of NHSX, otherwise known as NHS Digital, Matthew Gould, and the Information Commissioner, Elizabeth Denham. And as a result of that, Harriet Harman said she had not been reassured by their testimony. In a report published this week, the committee outlined key actions it would like the government to take to ensure that the app respects the human rights of its users, including the right to privacy, non-discrimination and freedom of movement and association. In a very strong judgment, it said the app should not be released to the wider community unless such protections are in place, and a number of guarantees are made in several areas. And those are proportionality. The committee report concluded that without these benefits of the app, the level of data collected would not be justifiable and would therefore contravene data protection and human rights legislation. It also said that they felt there should be primary legislation. It said that any data gathering by the contact tracing app must be accompanied with guaranteed data and human rights protection through new primary legislation, i.e. legislation that's been through both Houses of Parliament. And the committee called for the government to set up an independent body to oversee the use, effectiveness and privacy protections of the app and any data it generates. This group should include a new digital contact tracing human rights commissioner responsible for oversight and empowered to deal with complaints and report back to Parliament. Now, this is one area where I personally do have a problem because surely that, in a sense, is what the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, is already there to do. So I'm not quite sure why the committee feels that we need another government twango to perform that function. But anyway, they've also called for regular reviews. The committee said the app must be reviewed every 21 days by the House Secretary, considering the app's efficiency, data safety and how privacy is being protected. And finally, the government and health authorities must be transparent when it comes to how the app and the data it generates are used. In conclusion, the committee stated that the amount of data the app requires cannot be justified unless the app meaningfully contributes to the fight against COVID-19 and the easing of the UK's lockdown restrictions. It said that digital contact tracing could only be effective if uptake was reasonably high and there was no way this would happen unless users would be confident in privacy protections. 
It was also pointed out that interoperability with the systems used by the countries would also impact its efficiency, particularly in Ireland, which adopted to use a decentralised model favoured by Apple and Doodle. The UK's divergent from this risks making it impossible for the two different apps to interoperate when moving between Northern Ireland and the Republic, in effect creating a contact tracing hard border. Initial feedback on the app from users in the Isle of Wight has been mixed. Some really think that it's useful and that it will serve to ease the lockdown restrictions in the UK. Others are incredibly sceptical and indeed some are refusing to install the app altogether. And of those that have installed it, there have been reports that on some models of iPhone, the app only works if it's the currently active app and that the app doesn't work in the background which obviously limits the usefulness of the app because most people presumably are going to want to use other apps on their phone as they're used to and not have to have this app in the foreground all the time, which would of course prevent them doing anything else with their mobile phone, which I don't think most people can be willing to take that step. But hopefully that's just a snag which can be brought out in further development and of course that's part of the reason for carrying out a beta test. You know, We all know with any experience of data projects the beta test isn't there necessarily to prove that the system works, although that's obviously a nice thing to happen, but it is there to find bugs in the system such that they can be removed before the system goes completely live to the general public. Doubtless there will be updates on this, so as soon as we receive any updates, we will of course bring them to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now is the interview spot on the GDPR Weekly Show. So this afternoon, I have the pleasure of speaking to Kingsley Hayes, Hayes Connor Solicitors. Kingsley, great to have you on. Thanks, Keith. Can you give us a little bit of background? What do Hayes Connor Solicitors do and how did you get into the GDPR world? No problem at all. Hayes Connor Solicitors, uh, well, we're a firm of solicitors, as I think the title suggests, and we exclusively deal in inquiries related to data breach and cybercrime. This is a, an area that we got into sort of 2016 pre-GDPR and basically have, have not looked back since uh, in terms of our exposure in, in this area and in terms of the amount of work that we do for consumers. We're a, a totally consumer-facing firm of solicitors. We do, don't act for companies and we seek to get appropriate redress for consumers who have unfortunate data breaches, be they post-GDPR or, or even pre-GDPR under Data Protection Act 1998. Sure, okay, that's really, that's really good. So, I mean, we're, we're obviously living in a bit of an alien world at the moment with COVID-19. What impacts do you think COVID-19 is having on the business community in the GDPR context, especially with most companies now having a large volume of people working remotely at home. Yeah, I think there's a, a not insubstantial impact, and I think that probably rolls over at least two or three separate areas. As an organisation ourselves, you've had to go uh, working exclusively remotely from home, uh, unless you are set up for that type of operation and, and running an operation like that. Uh, in advance of something like COVID-19, I think you do struggle to understand the amounts of data that come into your business in, in different formats uh, and from different locations uh, and how you then control your staff uh, and your staff's capability to protect that data in a remote location is, a, is an interesting challenge for everybody. 
Um, you know, I think those organisations that had a working from home ethos before COVID-19 are probably in a much more secure position um, than those who were reliant upon paper files uh, or uh, uh, large volumes of data sure. into an organisation and being handed around individuals. So uh, I think that's a challenge, probably as big a challenge, and, and, and I think we've seen that in the recent days with some of the media reports, is the massive increase in the amount of cybercrime, attempted cybercrime, phishing that have been going on. And we've noticed a significant increase in inquiries from individuals who've been the subject of those types of attacks. And certainly it seems to be a very unfortunate prevalence in, in the marketplace generally at the moment with organizations, be they state-backed or otherwise, who are looking to take advantage of errors. Bearing in mind that Probably around 90% of data breach incidents in 2019 were due to human error. Mm. Um, you, you can imagine how that can be compounded in both a remote, remote working situation and, and also in a situation where people are a little stressed. Yeah. You know, I'm sure we're all finding working from home being a, a very interesting uh, and, and different change to our normal routines. Sure, yeah. And, and I mean, I think, you know, there, there are, for, for all of us, we're, we're having to adapt to what is a very different way of working and and i i was i've had a discussion with somebody yesterday where i said that mm. actually i think we're all heading for a new normal i think the normal that we had has probably gone for quite a long time oh, i completely i completely agree i mean we i, I mean I, I can really only speak from my from my own experience sure. in terms of what we're doing at the moment but we we've certainly seen probably a, a positive impact from uh, the remote working systems that we've put in place and, and probably a greater amount of efficiency and probably I would suggest also a greater amount of protection in relation to the individual data because actually it is it's all being dealt with remotely it's all being or being stored centrally it's not a situation where people are carrying around documents sure. uh, in offices and and between offices so mm. i, I yeah. agree with you i think whatever the new normal may ultimately be on whatever level it may be i think there's no going back to to a full office based environment for anybody in the future anytime soon no i think you're i think you're right and that but i think as part of that you know and it, it relates back to what we were saying is that Certainly, we've become aware of, a, of an increasing number of very clever phishing emails, mm. which you know would catch out 99% of people probably. And it's only at the last minute that you suddenly think, "Oh, wait a minute, has this actually come from where it has?" And I think, I think that's a whole new area where perhaps there's—I mean, it's great for companies like my my, my own, but mm. I think it's an area where there's opportunities for more training. Yeah, and, and I think the—I mean, we've we've certainly noticed in. You know, part of part of what we do for individuals is to seek to recover monies that that they have lost as a result of fraudulent sure. transactions. Yeah. And yeah. you know, over the years, and and this isn't COVID nineteen related, but certainly over the years, we've noticed that these individuals who perpetrate these types of attacks are seeking to prey upon people who are psychologically not necessarily in the best place, place or, or or alternatively are stressed. So, you know, conveyancing transactions, for example, none yeah. of which are moving forward at the moment, I hate to add, but certainly, you know, moving house is a very stressful time. You see uh, people who you would normally think 
in their professional life would be very switched on to something that doesn't quite look right. Um, uh, allow that to, to filter into their mind, allow that to filter into their process. And, and before they know where they are, they've sent a large amount of money to somewhere that they're never going to get back. Um, sure. So I think certainly the stressful situation that we're all in at the moment with COVID-19 is definitely adding to that as a, as a, as a key mm-hmm. stress for people. Yeah, yeah, I t- totally agree. So move, moving back to your main mm. sort, your main sort of business, if you like, I, I've noticed that you're taking the lead on a number of class actions to recover compensation for victims of data breaches. Um, team particular of British Airways and Marriott hotels, of course, were two people mm. that were in everybody's mind in the in the in the yeah. One thing that I've always thought when with, with people who we you know seek, like yourself who seek to recover damages, and quite rightly. But it's obvious really how you can seek compensation for real losses. But how do you go about assessing claims for things like emotional distress? I tend to find it's easy to explain this to people, not really focusing upon the larger mass breaches, but but just looking at individual examples. So, huh? um, you know, we, we, we certainly do a, a, a large amount of volume work, but we also do an, an, an awful lot of individual claims for individual people. And what you tend to find within both of these areas is, is a, it's a very well-established concept, but you have to take your claimant as you find them. And, yeah. and not everybody uh, is on a very sort of stable, happy, stress-free footing at the point where they are the victim of something that is not their fault. Sure. And that can be that can be an accident generally, or it, or it can be a data breach. And uh, you know, I'm often asked how can it be that somebody loses their financial information, their credit card details, they suffer from a couple of frauds, and how can that impact on them? Well, sure. well, it, well it, it, it really plays upon people's fears yeah. and, uh, and people's psyche in relation to, be it paranoia, be it pre-existing psychological distress that they already have or, or other life stresses or events that it piles on top of and and wherever people lose money even if they ultimately get some of that money repaid to them further down the line either by credit companies credit card companies or others the damage is already done psychologically and the trust that exists between them and potentially an online retailer or anybody else is damaged and every time they come to think about how they are going to move forward in the world uh, where most transactions are being done online as opposed to face to face it does cause them distress um, sure. We ourselves have a very good track record of proving the link between the emotional distress, the, the psychological distress and the breaches themselves. And we've managed to do that in conjunction with psychologists. And there's quite a, a substantial body of work that's now available um, that, that is of interest to read in this area. Uh, and, and it's that effectively, it's that way of of looking at what emotional distress causes. Sure. Um, I, I definitely think, though, eight, eight out of ten times at least, you already have somebody who is vulnerable in the first instance. And and be it large-scale data breaches or individual data breaches, you know, where the more personal the information, the more sensitive or the more financial the information is, the more likely it is to cause distress. Sure. Yeah, that makes, that makes, sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, you know, we're in the situation now where GDPR has been in place for over 18 months. And I mean, it was brought in with great, I'm going to say great fanfares. Do you think it's fulfilled its promise? Uh, great fanfare. It, it was certainly brought in with a great amount of scratching of heads. 
in, <laughs> I think it's fair to say in, in the sense of, okay, well, what is this um, sure. for organisations? Is this something that is another box ticking exercise or is it really meaning something? Uh, and, and in the sense of really meaning something, what is the impact to an organisation that doesn't uh, either seek to comply with GDPR or alternatively doesn't understand the consequences of, of, of not complying with it or the consequences of not protecting personal data. Sure. Um, I, I think, um, has it fulfilled its promises? Well, I would tend to suggest that in certainly the area that we're in, give you an example, mm. we now see something like 30,000 unique visitors a month to our website. Right. Looking for looking for information around uh, what uh, GDPR is, what data breaches are, what people can do as a result. GDPR has certainly increased the ability for people to understand what the value of their personal sure. data is and what they can yeah. do about it if it's oh. not held correctly. You know, if I compare that to where we were pre-GDPR, we're probably four or five times in volume the number of items, the number of inquiries that we deal with. Right. So yeah. it's done that. Um, it's probably brought still a large amount of frustration yeah. because it's very difficult to understand the role that the regulator is playing for yeah. anybody other yeah. than um, Treasury and uh, effectively for uh, any large organizations that report their breaches. The yeah. consumer seems to almost be a bit of an afterthought um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, in that yeah. In that respect, I mean, it, it, you know, very much does seem to be uh, okay. You, as a large organisation, for BA, for example, don't don't do what you should do. We're going to fine you 183 million pounds. Mm. Um, you know, other substantive breaches, such as Ticketmaster, is, is one that interests us quite considerably, sure, sure. Um, uh, and occurred before BA, and yet there's not been an ICA ICO finding in relation to that still to to this day, and no, it's nearly two no. years, mm. nearly two years since that breach. So. Um, I, I do find that to be, uh, let's call that a lack of fulfilment of promise. Um, you know, if, if, if something, if some, something on the regulatory side were to move forward GDPR in a more productive way, mm. I think organisations may have an opportunity to to really think about what it means for them. Um, sure. I, I still don't think that 80% of organisations think GDPR applies to them. No, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, we we obviously run. A- large number of training courses and yeah. we still get people coming to us now only because suddenly somebody's raised a, a complaint against them and they've suddenly thought, oh, yeah. Yeah, what's that then? What should we be, what should we be mm. doing? Which in a way, some ways I find disappointing in other ways not surprising. We've seen an interesting shift in strategy, which I, which I think is, is related to resource over the years. I mean, as I say, when we're coming up to two years shortly. And in that first six-month period post-implementation, the ICO were very helpful to consumers yeah. who were contacting them in the aftermath of a breach occurring or something occurring. Um, that strategy seemed to change between month six and, and month 18. Um, yeah. Probably as resource was sucked into dealing with Cambridge Analytica, then the large yeah, breaches yeah. that occurred with BA, Marriott, Ticketmaster, etc. So, you know, it, now I think we're in a world of certainly uh, if I see 10 decision notices coming from the ICO, nine of those decision notices seem to relate to marketing and cold calling. Um, yeah, which is yeah. which is certainly not what GDPR was set up to deal with in no, the first place. No, I, so, I, I, I quite agree. And, and I, I think, you know, 
I think one of the problems, um, we actually ran the story on this in the last episode of the DDPL Weekly Show mm-hmm. last week, where one of the issues is that there's just simply the lack of highly technical staff that the ICO actually has. You, 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 know, you know, it's it's almost got too many, I'm going to say too many administrators and not enough techies. And that's a very broad brush statement. But, you know, it, it it is a problem, I think. And I think one of the problems which everyone finds frustrating as well, certainly I, I feel frustrated over, is if you even take the BA situation where they announce the penalty and yet we're still months and months away from BA actually having to pay a penny of it. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, we're in the middle of that at the moment and uh, we're in the middle of Dixon's retail group as well where, where a penalty was announced recently and there seems to be a playbook uh, that is being rolled out by the very expensive uh, teams uh, of London lawyers that represent these organisations that they will attack the integrity, the technical quality and the and the findings of the ICO reports and take those as far as they can. Yeah, because frankly, yeah. if you are if you are being fined a, a large percentage of your turnover, uh, and that's running into the the many multiple millions, what, why wouldn't you? Um, well, you know, because ulti- yeah. ultimately you'll be looking to do a deal with with the ICO further down the line to at least yeah. half the yeah. line, um, yeah. and it is no more than a money saving exercise. It's not about it's not about the technical accuracy no. of the finding or or the lack of compliance. It's just about how far into the grass can you kick it. Yeah, I I I hundred percent agree with you. So if you if you could change one thing about GDPR, what would you change? Ooh, no, there's a question. <laughs> uh, if one thing about GDPR, uh, probably probably the name for a start, because right, I don't yeah. GDPR GDPR doesn't mean anything to anybody. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I I I, I think if if the, the lack of consumer focus. And I know that may sound a little bit bizarre because the entire piece of legislation is designed on protecting individuals' data. Mm-hmm. But actually, actually, all of the processes and all of the all of the aspects that are put behind the scheme and the legislation to try and protect the consumer are actually very confusing for the consumer. They're not clear. They're not straightforward. And to be honest, they're not clear and straightforward for organisations to implement. So, sure. a, 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 I think a almost like a nutshells um, version of GDPR would be useful yeah. um, uh, in order to enable organizations and individuals to understand what should be happening for them and what their rights are. Uh, you know, the time and time again, we see um, a lack of understanding by consumers that they can have data erased, that they can have data altered if it's inaccurate. Uh-huh. They have no idea most of the times where their data is going, what it's being used sure. for and how many yeah. times it's being filled on. So, mm. you know, G- GDPR does not tackle those aspects um, exactly. on its own. Um, and, and I think, you know, to answer the, the wide-ranging question of one thing to change, I think it needs a much better regulatory enforcement uh, around it, and I think that enforcement needs to be split into two very distinct categories. Um, you know, one would be related to the larger organisations and and how they operate, and the other one would be a, a much more consumer-facing organisation. Sure. Um, that, that to provide support that isn't currently available outside of businesses like ours. Sure. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Coming back to Top ID 19. For a moment, one issue that we've been running in this week's episode is about the outcome from the Crossbench Human Rights Committee in the House of Commons. 
regarding the security of the proposed COVID-19 contact tracing app that's being developed by NHS Digital. And that I, for one, really can't understand why the government would choose to try to develop their own app with a centralised database solution when Apple and Google have a jointly developed app which is being adopted by numerous countries worldwide. Obviously it started in South Korea but has now spread sort of right around the world and it's been particularly adopted by a lot of European countries and it also has the benefit that it doesn't store any data centrally, it just keeps the data in an anonymised form on each user's mobile phone. If someone does become ill with COVID-19, the app then alerts those people that person's been in contact with, but that's solely from the data held on the phone and there's no involvement of central government at all. And I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. Our issues around Google's you know, compliance with privacy and, and certainly Apple's, um, uh, where you know, we could do an entire five hours around that. Sure, but, sure. But, yeah, developing, yeah. developing something from scratch is always fraught with difficulty, and you know, in the position that we are in, I wouldn't want to see that handing over people's sensitive personal data to other apps or other organisations or, or other actors, even you know, on, on the world stage that it, that it shouldn't go to. So, but by the same token, we need we need the app, we need the tracking and tracing capability. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I I totally agree, and I mean I'm I'm doubly of that opinion, if you like. If you think that, unfortunately, in the UK, for whatever reason, the central gov- central government delivered apps don't have a great reputation of working on time and in budget. Never. <laughs> I mean, I've seen I've seen so many projects over the years in different different guises. Um, you know, the, the the sort of the the approach to technology is far too splintered, and actually, the people who control the budgets don't tend to understand what the technology implementation is um, and you know you, you are into a very very difficult area if, if, if that's where you get to um, you know and if you've got layers and layers of project managers and, and uh, companies who have uh, vested interest in these things they will carry on milking it for a very large amount of time sure. so I, I, I would agree with you uh, existing technology uh, consistent technology and particularly if we're going to get back to globalization and global sure. travel no, no, because you know ultimately as well, you know, I, you know, at some point when we're back to, as, as we said earlier, the the, the new normal, th- there is going to have to be, you know, inquiries and things into what what went what went well, what didn't go well, and it to me, you know, the I, I think the government sometimes is playing its own card because you know it said for every day we we we've sat down at five o'clock or four o'clock a weekend and we and we've seen those graphs of international comparison and then yesterday they suddenly say well of course you know now that we're hiring everyone else you can't there's actually no point in international comparison and <laughs> and you're like <laughs> yes uh, yeah uh, lies lies and damn statistics yes i i yeah i i would agree with you i mean the, the unfortunate thing about the way that that's being approached is it, it's almost designed to desensitize you to what you see yeah um, yeah and to you know and unfortunately, those rates are becoming the new norm. The one thing that really sort of bothers me about all of this moving forward is the, the, the government-controlled departments, be they uh, NHS or others, have never been actually very good themselves at protecting people's personal sensitivity. 
No, no. Never been very good at opt-ins and opt-outs mm. and um, letting people know where their medical data is going and, and how many organisations it ends up with abroad. Uh, it is quite staggering. I, I really would not want to see in the aftermath of this a whole host of privacy-related claims, data protection claims, mm. because the government decided to go it alone. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, that, that just fills me with dread. Um, it, from a business perspective, it doesn't, but certainly from a, you know, at this point in time, you know, you don't want those organisations no. to be in this situation, and it just it baffles, baffles me who is actually advising them. Sure. Yeah. No. I. I. I 100% agree with you there. Well, it's been it's been a really useful interview, Kingsley. So, how do you, how how do my listeners get in touch with you if there's things they want to follow up? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we uh, so we have um, a very large uh, web and social media presence. Um, so we can be found at www.hayesconnor.co.uk and uh, Hayes Connor solicitors on Facebook and Twitter. Um, uh, those are in the current climate certainly the easiest ways of sending us a message checking out our content or, or alternatively checking out the information that we have on all things relating to uh, GDPR and data breach so if anybody wants to contact us they're the best way brilliant okay thank you very much Kingsley yeah. great to speak to you cheers cheers well I hope you found that interview with Kingsley Hayes from Hayes Thomas Listers really interesting I know we covered quite a range of items in it Hayes Thomas Solicitors also have a great Twitter feed for keeping up with the latest news in their area. And you can find their Twitter feed at, at Hayes Connor Soul. So that's at H-A-Y-E-S-C-O-N-N-O-R-S-O-L. If you'd like to be interviewed on a future edition of the GDPR Weekly Show, we're always open to new ideas for interviews. So please just drop us a line to podcast at insurety.co.uk. That's the N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. And we'll be pleased to get in touch with you and try and get something set up. And now, the rest of this week's news. Business software group SAP disclosed on Tuesday this week that some of its cloud products did not meet contractual or statutory security standards and said it would take remedial action to fix the problem as soon as possible. The shortcomings had not been identified in response to a specific security incident, the German company said, nor did it believe that any customer data had been compromised as a result of these issues. While SAP, Europe's most richly valued technology company, declined to elaborate on a statement it issued overnight, the news follows management turmoil and a reduction in its profits forecast due to the coronavirus pandemic. Analysts said it could not dampen enthusiasm amongst SAP's client base, to back a digital transformation in which it is seeking to shift the operation of enterprise, human resources and marketing applications to off-site data centres from its traditional model of putting servers in customer locations. As a result of the notice, SAP shares fell by 0.4%, underperforming a gain of 1.4% in Germany's 30-share DAX index of blue-chip stocks. SAP, founded by a group of IBM alumni in the 1970s, recently ended its dual leadership structure with co-CEO Jennifer Morgan leaving, bringing an end to the six-month tenure of the first woman to top to head a top-tier German-listed company. Jennifer Morgan was responsible for SAP's cloud operations. Christian Klein, a protege of co-founder and chairman Hasso Plattner, is now the sole CEO of the company based in the southwest German town of Waldorf. 
SAP said it had initiated action to address the shortcomings as identified in relation to contractually agreed or statutory security standards. SAP said the work would be completed to a large extent in the second quarter of 2020. In the statement, SAP said it was informing affected customers approximately 9% of SAP's 440,000 customers worldwide and providing full product and customer support. The expenses related to the remediation are expected to be covered within the range of SAP's current 2020 financial outlook, it said. SAP products affected range from human resources to travel and expenses management, sales and analytics. SAP have also named a new top security team, appointing Tim McKnight as Chief Security Officer, Richard Puckett as Chief Information Security Officer and John Kuvert as Global Head of Physical Security. It has opened a new Cyber Fusion Centre in Newton Square, Philadelphia as a hub for its global security operations. The company denied that the security measures were taken in response to a specific incident. Asked specifically whether there was any link to the exploits of a group of suspected China cyber spies known as Cloudhopper that penetrated the IT systems of several large companies, the spokesman said, none whatsoever. If we have any further update on this from SAP, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Web hosting provider and domain registrar GoDaddy has finally owned up to a data breach which took place in October 2019, so almost seven months ago, with thousands of hosting accounts being accessed by an unauthorised individual, the firm is revealed in a statement. In a notification to affected customers that has been made available via the Attorney General's office in California, GoDaddy CISO and Engineering Vice President Demetrius Tomez said the unauthorised individual gained access to login information that its customers used to connect to SSH, Secure Shell, on their hosting accounts. Tomez said an investigation had found no evidence that the attackers had modified or deleted any files on the affected accounts and the perpetrator had now been blocked from the system. All impacted accounts have had their credentials reset. Chamez says in the letter that out an abundance of caution, we recommend you conduct an audit of your hosting account. It goes on to say that this incident is limited in scope to your hosting account, your main GoDaddy.com customer account, and the information stored in your customer account was not accessible by this threat actor. On behalf of the GoDaddy team, we want to say how much we appreciate your business and that we sincerely regret this incident occurred. We are providing you one year of website security deluxe and express malware removal at no cost. These services run scans on your website to identify and alert you of any potential security vulnerabilities. With this service, if a problem arises, there is a special way to contact our security team and they will be there to help. It should be remembered, of course, that this is not the first time that GoDaddy has been forced to own up to cybersecurity failures. Indeed, it seems to suffer major incidents with a degree of regularity. Back in 2017, it was forced to revoke almost 9,000 SSL certificates when a bug in its domain validation processing system resulted in certificates being issued without proper domain validation. 
GoDaddy was also in the headlines in 2018 when data leaked out after it failed to properly lock down an Amazon Web Services simple storage service, AWS S3 instance. This is a non-trivial matter considering that S3 buckets are in fact secure by default and any data exposed or leakage from them is down to actions taken or rather not taken by users rather than AWS itself. If we have any update on this from GoDaddy, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Often imitated, but never duplicated. Our final story this week is about a data leak from Tesla. The data breach, data leak has come about because old components from Tesla cars with personal info on have found their way onto eBay. Evidence has emerged that Tesla does not erase personal data from replaced components and that the replaced components, or some of them at least, are winding up on eBay for sale online. Tesla's retrofitting service for media control units and autopilot hardware may not go far enough in protecting owners' personal data. That's according to a white hat hacker called Green the Only. He obtained four units of Tesla computers off eBay and found the previous owner's personal data still on them. More worrying, though, perhaps was Tesla's response, or rather lack of response, when Green confronted the company with the data. According to Green, he informed Tesla of his findings. The California-based company refused to notify all of its customers that they might be affected in a timely manner, although it's understood that Tesla has said it will notify one of the affected customers. Green said each of the modules he bought had owner's work home and work location, all saved Wi-Fi passwords, calendar entries from their owner's phone, call lists and address books from paired phones, Netflix and other stored session cookies. Netflix session cookies allow hackers to take control of the user's Netflix account. Spotify passwords are stored in clear text. Thus, if you own a Tesla and have had your car retrofitted with new computer hardware, your personal information may be for sale right now on eBay or another digital marketplace. Green went on to say that prices on eBay for these units started to drop from more than $500 to $300 and $200 and $150 and so on, so more and more people started to buy them for research. They're useless in car repairs because there's no easy way to use them in any other cars except Tesla's, it seems you do need some specialised knowledge, though, to actually extract any data from the unit. Obviously, Green was able to do this, but you can't just buy a unit off eBay, as we understand it anyway. You can't just buy a unit off eBay and easily extract the data from it. It's worth pointing out that these computer retrofits are performed by Tesla only, either at their service centres or through the company's mobile service. Owners usually want all their personal data transferred to the new computer, so Tesla uses the old computer installed in the car to transfer that data to the new computer. Once the original computer is removed from the vehicle, though, the owner no longer has any ability to erase their own data. Like any warranty replacement, you don't get to keep the old parts when the retrofit is performed. Tesla keeps them, claiming that it's performing the replacement for free. For their part, Tesla says that it instructs service centres to destroy the unit with a hammer before throwing it into the trash. Tesla's only recommendation is that if you've had a retrofit of a unit into your Tesla car, that you change all of your passwords, not just on Tesla, but wherever else you've used those passwords. We hope to get a further statement from Tesla at some point in the near future, and as soon as we do, We'll bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. 
So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.